into a small group and just discuss a question with them. I'm going to ask you uh, the question, if you haven't taken the opportunity to meet, just introduce yourselves uh, as you get into a, a little cluster there. But the question that I want you to discuss, it's nothing highly personal, it's just a math question for you. How many, uh, is this question, how many contracts do you estimate that you are currently involved in or legally bound by? How many contracts do you think uh, have your name attached to it in some way? All right, so think about for your house, at work, products or services you use, activities that you participate in, okay? So I want you to just maybe move your chairs a little bit and get around a few people that are seated next to you and try and just add it up. That's just a list of kind of some suggestions to get you started on that. Try and ballpark a number. How many contracts do you think just kind of go through each part of your life, think about your cell phone, all that kind of stuff, all right? Software that you have on your computer. All right, so turn around, talk to a few of the people around you, try and figure out how many contracts do you think currently you personally are involved in or legally bound by? All right, we'll give you another minute or so to kind of add them in your mind. If you need a little prompter, Go through your wallet or your purse and try and figure out every card that you have in there probably has a contract associated with it in some way. So just start counting those up and add them to your total. I'll tell you in a minute. All right, so the question is, how many contracts do you estimate that you are currently involved in or legally bound by? So toss out some numbers. What did, what did you say? 20. 20. All right. Who else? 30? Okay. Too many. Too many. <laughs> That's a good answer. All right. Who else? 100. All right. Who else? Any other numbers? All right. Several thousand. All right, when you add up all your work ones, fair enough. All right, all right, fair enough. So the question here for us is to get us to think a little bit about what kind of numbers of contracts that we might. And when you stop to actually think about it, when you go through and you think how many aspects of our life and our modern life are governed by contracts. Just as an example, I rented a video yesterday. I signed my name without even thinking about what I was doing. Uh, now, the implications of that contract, just in a nutshell, might be as follows. Let's say I forget to get this video back, or I willfully ignore the terms of the contract. They'll call me. They'll be polite for a little while. After a while, they might send a letter, some nasty things, and then they'll just full out charge the video, cost of the video, to the credit card that I have on file, because way back when I first went to that video store, I forgot they made me fill out a big contract, give them some financial information. Now, if I go further and I say, I'm not going to pay for that, uh, then now I'm in trouble with the credit card company, right? Because I can say, I'm not going to pay you people. They'll also be nice for just a very short window of time, probably a little less than the video store people will be. And then they'll come after other assets maybe that I have. So you just think even in that simple transaction, when I signed last night, I got involved in multi-layers of contractual obligation to the people, the nice people at the video store. Uh, and so many times, we're involved in contracts in modern life, we don't even think about it. Another example, last week, 
on my phone, it sent a little piece and I was on the app store and it said, we've updated the terms of our contract and there's 86 pages for you to read. I just clicked accept. I didn't even read. I could be bound by all kinds of weird stuff that Apple might want from me and I have no idea by it. I just clicked I accept. I'm bound by the terms of that contract. Poof, with my pinky finger. I've just initialized an 86-page contract that now I and a big multinational corporation painlessly are engaged in. So I want you to keep this idea of contracts fixed in your mind as we go through our discussion together this morning. And we're going to look at, in God's Word, a unique biblical type of contract called a covenant. And we're going to see how specific a covenant is and how significant and how powerful it is and how binding it is for those that are involved in it. And also how amazing it is that God would choose to covenant with people like you and me. Well, this morning we are wrapping up our first teaching series of 2011. And we have gone through the first 15 chapters of the first book of the Bible, uh, the book of beginnings, called Genesis. And Genesis, uh, we've looked at a whole bunch of topics under the headings of history, mystery, and theology in the book of Genesis. And those of you who are teachers know how important it is to revisit your learning outcomes. So let's go back and look a little bit at what are the things that we thought we wanted to communicate in the book of Genesis in the past eight weeks. And really, as we've gone through the first part of God's story in the book of Genesis as revealed to us in his word, we've wanted to emphasize and communicate about some of the basic building blocks of biblical theology. Because like any good story, you get a lot of information at the very beginning that's very key and vital for the rest of the experience. And so the reason that we've been emphasizing some of these core pieces of biblical theology is that when you read the Bible for yourself, which we anticipate that you'll do outside of the context of our Sunday gatherings, and we have a tool for you called the Momentum Journal to help you with that, uh, when you come to a passage or a, a particular story or a character, you can look back and say, I think I remember some of this. This seems familiar to me in some way because so many of the building blocks for the rest of the biblical narrative are in place early in the book of Genesis. And Genesis teaches us an incredible amount of things in a very condensed period of time about God and about how God operates in our world, teaches us an incredible amount of things about us as human beings, and teaches us about our world and the state of our world and how we interact with it. And so, for example, when we first started in January in this series, we started to talk in Genesis chapter 1, particularly about an integration of faith and science and what that would look like in our lives. And we saw right off the bat that the Bible is concerned with the questions of who and why, and not as much about the questions of how that we sometimes fixate on with creation. And so we spent uh, some mornings together discussing that, and we spent an evening together uh, with Dr. Brown exploring evolution and God's design and his work in the world, and how might we be able to, as thinking people, engage with the world and not get distracted or sucked in by arguments uh, that are peripheral or false dichotomies. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we looked at rhythms of life and work 
and rest and what it means to trust God in the Sabbath and that seventh-day rest, connection with God. And Cain did not. Abel chose generosity and generous living, giving of our first fruits, while Cain chose to let the sin that was crouched at his door master him. And then in chapter 6 to 10, we saw the story of the great flood and how we saw how the uh, Bible uses the terms that the thoughts, the inclination, the actions of every person all of the time were always bent towards evil and towards wickedness. And so God displayed judgment and he displayed mercy in the saving of Noah and his family in the flood. But still, people rebelled against God. And we saw that instance uh, of after God had given his command to be fruitful and to multiply in Genesis chapter 11, that there was a group who built a tower and said, no, God, we don't care what you think at all. Uh, we do not want to follow that plan. And so instead, they chose their own plan and God's actions of scattering them. And in his actions of scattering and in his command to be fruitful, multiply, reiterated three times early in Genesis, we've seen God's incredible heart for the whole of his world, for the nations, and for the people all over uh, the globe. And then last week, we met one of the central characters of the Bible, a man named Abram, later Abraham. And Pastor Keith reminded us in chapter 12 of God's call and his blessings that have responsibilities and also costs to them. And so today we continue with the story of Abram, and we're not going to finish it. It actually continues uh, much through the book of Genesis. The narrative picks up now and focuses and narrows on Abram and his family and his offspring and God's interactions with them. And there's so much more exciting stuff in Genesis that we're going to pick up the rest of the book in July and August uh, when we'll be on sabbatical. And so Pastor Keith and a whole group of fantastic special guests uh, that we've lined up will be walking through the, the second half of the book of Genesis. But today, our emphasis is on the last big building block in terms of our thinking uh, about biblical theology, and it's the concept called covenant. And we're going to ask the question from Genesis chapter 15, what is the covenant? Anyways, what is a covenant? This is a word that appears 287 times in the Old Testament, so it would seem that it's a little bit important and 25 specific instances in the Old Testament where covenants are drawn up. And so some would argue even that it's one of the central themes of the Old Testament and of the Bible uh, as a whole. And so it's somewhat of an important concept if we want to try and grasp and understand what it is that God is trying to communicate us to us about his interactions with the world. And so we want to ask, is there a difference between tapping I accept with my pinky on my iPhone and uh, in terms of a contract and a covenant, are there any significant differences that we should understand? And then really, this idea of covenant sounds a little bit old-fashioned, and we want to explore a little bit, is this just an Old Testament thing, or are there any realities and significance uh, for us in our lives and our world today? So let's pray as we jump into the reading of God's Word uh, together this morning. God, we say thank you uh, for your word, its truth. We ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word. We submit ourselves to its authority. And for those of us who are exploring and who have questions, God, I pray that you would speak to each person's heart by your word and the authority of your spirit in this place this morning, God. 
So we say thank you for that. We agree that your word and that you are alive and active and that you desire to communicate truth to us in this place today. And so we put ourselves in a position of openness to receive it, and we say thank you for your desire to communicate it to us. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. Well, last week when we left Abram in chapter 12, Pastor Keith talked to us about how God came to him and promised to bless him. But as Pastor Keith highlighted so clearly for us, life is not easy for Abram just because he lives with God's blessings. And I think sometimes we get this idealized picture Uh, of the Bible and how life might have been or it might have been for Abram. And we say things to ourselves like, oh, if only I could hear from God like Abram heard from God. I mean, that would be so much easier for me just to have a clear communication with God where he comes to me and talks to me about what he thinks about my life. Well, uh, maybe over the course of Abram's life, Uh, The recorded interactions, which begin in his life at age 75, so a lot of us would have to wait for a little while, uh, and they ended 100 years later. Over a course of 100 years, we only have recorded interaction between God and Abram eight times, and sometimes there's decades of silence in between those conversations. And when God speaks to Abram, it doesn't always have the tone which we would like to think that it has. It's not always great news when God comes and interacts with Abram. So open your Bible or take out your iPhone and look with me at Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation beginning at verse 1. And we're going to look at some of the things that God promises to Abram here in chapter 15. And finally how God guarantees them in the form of a covenant. So I'll start reading in verse 1. And it says, sometime later, God spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, here's starting of his promises, which Pastor Keith highlighted for us again last week. Number one, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. Sounds not bad so far. But I love the realism of the scriptures and how Abram's first response isn't, oh, thank you, God, that sounds so great. Verse 2, he says, um, uh, Abram replied, Sovereign Lord, what good are all of these blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, a little bit accusatory, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant of my household, he's going to get all of my wealth. You've given me no descendant of my own, so one of my servants is going to be my heir. Who cares? Then the Lord said to him, No, no, Abram, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That is how many descendants that you will have. And we get this picture of kind of the two of them standing there in some way and this starry night imagery of Abram looking up and trying to count them and losing track and thinking, wow, that's just a lot of stars. How could that possibly be the case? I don't even have one descendant. And God's telling me that this will be my reality. And there's a beautiful verse in Genesis 15, verse 6, and it simply says this, Abram believed the Lord. 
And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith. Abram moves from fatigue to faith. He believes and trusts God based on not what he sees, but based on God's character, based on the authority of the one who promises. That Abram can't even see or begin to imagine what it is that God has in store for him. But then God's not finished. God continues. And Abram believed God, and then the Lord says to him, I am the Lord, in verse 7, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. And you think Abram's had this starry night experience. He's going to say, thank you so much, God, this future promise of land and everything. No, he's still pretty much in the same place. He says, um, just a question for you, God. Um, how can I be sure that I'm going to actually possess it? It's a fair question. It's a good question. If you look down to the very end of the text in verse 19, the land is now occupied by a whole list of groups whose names are very difficult to pronounce, so I won't try. But this is not sort of a land that he can just walk into and say, great, this is awesome, this is mine. This is a place where people already live and feel that it's theirs. So this is something that I think is a very legitimate question for Abram to ask. How can I be sure, God? I had this starry night vision of all these wonderful things that you have in store for me, but right now it doesn't look very concrete in any ways. We move from this starry night experience right back into realism again. And at this point, God takes on a very unique covenantal action. So God says to him in verse uh, 9, The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, it's a cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, so five animals. So, Abram presented all of these to God, and he killed them. And then he cut each animal down the middle, and he laid the halves out side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. I have no idea what that means. Chapter, uh, verse 12. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and terrifying darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end, they will come away with great wealth. But as for you, verse 15, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. It's an odd combination of promises that God makes to him. Abraham asks, how can I be sure? And God says, well, you can be sure of a couple of things. One, 400 years of not so good stuff. In the end, good stuff. For you, not bad stuff. And after four generations, verse 16, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sin of the Amorites does not yet warrant their destruction. Verse 17, after the sun went down, and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses that he had cut and laid out. And so the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. 
This is one of the most significant, but one of the most unusual passages that we've come across in Genesis to date. God and Abraham make a covenant. Literally, the word is they cut a covenant with one another. And it's not at all like our thinking about what we would understand a contractual obligation to look like. And so it would be helpful to pause here and ask, well, what in the world is a covenant? And there's a lot of answers, but the simple answer, which I'm indebted to my Old Testament professor, Dr. Elmer Martins, is that a covenant is simply an arrangement between two parties in which the greater party commits themselves to the lesser in the context of mutual loyalty. You see, what what God and Abram are doing here, although to us it seems weird and very bloody to us, is a similar idea to what we have in our mind about clicking the I accept button on a mouse or signing your name to a document. It's a culturally understood way of entering into a contractual arrangement. You see, when the Bible uses the word covenant, it's talking about a very specific and very deep type of binding contractual arrangement. In ancient times, people would not enter into covenants lightly or any agreement, frankly, lightly whatsoever. It was a big deal to enter into any kind of treaty or arrangement with anybody else. And so uh, euphemistically, you may have heard of the expression, sign your name in blood. Well, this is kind of where some of that comes from. You would do something like that in the ancient Near East when you would make a covenant. So if you wanted to get into a contract with somebody else of significance, you would take an animal, you would kill the animal, you would cut it in half up and down the middle, and you would lay the two halves out, one side and the other side, and then you would get the other party And you and the other party would both walk through the middle halves of these two halves of the blood that's all gory all around you there. And then the other party would walk through the other half. And then you would look eye to eye with each other and you would say something like, let it be done to me just like it was done to this animal if I don't fulfill any part of the arrangement that we just made. And then you would shake hands and you would enter into a covenant. It's pretty gory stuff in some ways. You cut this animal in half and the carcass is thrown all around. And from archaeological evidence, we know that there's all kinds of covenants that were cut in this way from this time period. And they use the almost of the exact same construct as the one in Genesis chapter 15 or the covenant that God makes with Israel at Sinai. And so this is a very, very uh, culturally understood form of entering into an arrangement with one another. It's just like we would do today when you would go to buy something large, like a house or a car. There's lots and lots of paperwork. You read through it all. There's consequences. There's a preamble. It outlines the the parties that are interested in this particular contract. Both parties sign their name, and then we file it away somewhere neat and tidy. But in the ancient Near East, the way that they did this was cut the animal in half, walk through and say, you can do this to me. You can come and literally cut me in half, limb from limb, rip my body to shreds and everything if I'm not faithful to the agreement that we've just put in place here today. And we certainly don't do things like that today. And maybe 
that's helpful. I don't know. <laughs> Probably a little less messy when you go to buy a new house and the Remax office doesn't get all decimated with animal sacrifices and such. But it's because probably we tend to think in our minds today in terms of contracts instead of covenants. And think about all those contracts, again, that you discussed uh, with your neighbors at the start. Think about a contract that you might be in. Let's say to get into a fitness club or a business contract that you might have, uh, that you arrange. Most of the language of these contracts talks very specifically about what it is that each party is going to do for each other, and mostly how they will serve you. What will you get out of the contract? So let's look a little bit about some of the differences between what we think in our minds of contracts and when the Bible uses the term covenant, what it might be uh, alluding to or specifying. So contracts, when we think contracts, we think about the expected benefits that I am going to receive from entering into this contract. Here's what you are going to get me. Uh, for example, the contract that you sign for your car insurance. When my car gets in an accident, you will fix it, mostly. Uh, mutual agreement is the other aspect of a contract. Uh, there are things that you will do and things that I will do, such as I will pay my deductible if I get into an accident, and then you can fix it. So there's kind of a mutual arrangement that is usually constructed for contracts. And then that means that a contract is usually born out of some form of negotiation, that we have to kind of get to it with each other in relationship as to how we're going to uh, get to the agreement of the terms. Think about buying or selling something like a house or a car. You negotiate on the price. You, you dicker over what's included and not included. And that happens because most contracts tend to be fairly thing-focused. They're about what it is, uh, the agreement or the specific product or service that you are going to receive. And so they emphasize then the duty that you or the other party is supposed to engage in. So most modern contracts are filled with if-then statements. If you get us the money by such and such a date every month, then we will continue to insure you. Or if this happens, then we will do this. Uh, and these are also known in the legal terminology as loopholes to be exploited at all costs. Um, but this is not at all what the Bible means when it uses the term covenant, even though we think in these terms because it's very familiar to us. When God comes to Abraham, and it says in Genesis 15:17, God makes a covenant with Abraham, it's not at all a contract in the way that we think of it. It's an altogether different type of arrangement. And so in my thinking here, I'm indebted to uh, Dr. Martin's covenants talk about not the expected benefit, but covenant outlines a desire, an expressed desire for relationship. It talks not about what I'm going to get out of this arrangement, but what is it that I'm going to give to the other party out of my, our relationship that we have. And that's why in our, maybe one of the modern parallels that we do have is we tend to want to and aspire to think about marriage as a covenant. The other feature of a covenant is that the stronger one in the ancient Near East would initiate. And so it was not up if there was a covenant made between two nation states 
the stronger nation state, it was always in the ancient Near East up to the stronger one to initiate the covenant with the weaker one. And it was seldom a document that had mutual parties engaged in a relationship. There was almost always a disproportionate level of power or authority that one party had over and above and against the other party. And so it was up to the stronger party to initiate that covenant. As such, it's a gift from the stronger entity to protect or to invite the weaker into that relationship. A covenant in the ancient world and in the biblical text is also always person or people oriented. It says we will do this for and with one another as opposed to a more individualistic nature that we tend to think of our contracts in, in contemporary society. And one of the key features of covenants that differs from our thinking on contract is that covenants are rooted in loyalty as opposed to in performance indicators. And when we look into the text, we can see all of the features of covenant here in Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 and 18, as God initiates this covenant with Abraham. Abraham is not the one who says, hey God, I think that we should have a covenant together. God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to covenant with you and with your descendants. And I think when we look at this text, there's two key things and two key lessons that we can understand about covenant. And the first one is that it's not about us. When we sign contracts, it's always about us. What I'm going to do, what I'll receive, what I'm going to get out of this, how much authority do I have to act in this relationship, what recourse do I have if the other person doesn't keep their word or faults in some way. But in a covenant relationship, it's not about us. And in Abram's covenant with God, we see that it is all about God and about what God does. One commentator looking at this passage makes the important note that God alone is the one who actually carries out the ritual of covenant. God alone assumes the obligations of the covenantal oath. God chooses to be bound by the promise without requiring any action or oath from Abram. Abram observes God himself moving through the two pieces, the cut pieces of the carcasses. But Abram himself actually never walks through those carcasses. He never, as it were, signs his name on the dotted line of the covenant. In the ancient covenant rite, both parties have to do the walking because then both parties can look one another in the eye and say, may it be done to me just as was done to this animal if I fail in any part of this covenant. But here in Genesis 15, God is the only one who walks through the carcasses to make the covenant. Sometimes we fall into the trap of religion or religiosity, where we think that we get the chance to do things for God, and thus God is somehow contractually obligated to do things for us. 
we can fall into thinking like, well, if I pray, God will send me a shiny new job. If I'm really serious about it, I might even go crazy and fast and withdraw from some either food or other initiative, and then God will send it to me by next Tuesday instead of by next month. We may think, well, I'm giving money away or I'm serving the poor and God has an obligation then to return that money to me and make me fabulously wealthy or at least I should get my name in the newspaper for helping the poor. But the covenant encounter reminds us that it's not about us and our actions. Abram doesn't even get to perform an action here. He's in a deep, dark sleep. And all of God's promises to him and all of God's promises to us are God's gift by his grace. We don't get to do anything to earn them. We don't get to perform some religious observances like showing up on a Sunday morning in the snow and get brownie points in heaven or make God somehow more inclined to listen to us and give us what we want. We don't do anything to earn what it is that God might give to us. Abram does not and is never invited to pull himself up by his bootstraps and say, God, I'm going to try really, really hard to live out the commitments of this covenant. The picture that emerges for us in this text is that when it comes to any meaningful connection between us as humanity and between the one true God, God is the one who initiates God is the one who sustains. God is the one who consummates and fulfills every promise that he makes to Abram and to you and to me. Because, friends, it's not about us as individuals or as a community. If good things happen as a result of the ministry of Jericho Ridge, it's all about who God is and what he's doing. We don't take credit for it because God has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. And when God demonstrates his faithfulness in your life, and don't get cocky and think that it's somehow because you're special or maybe it's, oh, let me think, I put a little bit of extra money in the offering last June. That must be why God's blessing is flowing in to my life. Or somehow, I'm working so hard serving Jesus and volunteering or I'm headed off to a foreign country. All of our responses to God's work in this world and in our lives are out of gratitude to God's work, not out of contractual or covenantal obligation. Remember, we didn't get invited to walk through the animal carcasses. And that brings up the second amazing aspect of covenant. And that is that because we didn't get to walk through the animal carcasses, when we are faithless or unfaithful, God still remains covenantally committed to the things that he promised. As you read on in the story of Abram, it takes just two short verses in Genesis chapter 16 for Abram to get off track again and to waver in his belief that God will fulfill his promises. And it can be very easy for us to read that and say, come on, man, God just appeared to you and a vision and cut animals in half. You walked through, you saw, 
as represented by the fire. God walking through those carcasses. And two verses later, you're off doing something stupid again and lying. And this is just ridiculous. Come on, God gave you that. Can't you stay focused, Abram? What's up with that? But I have a lot of sympathy for Abram and for Sarai. After all, we can probably all relate to the experience of being in a place in our life group or a church on a Sunday, hearing from God's word and saying yes to him, promising, yes, God, I'm going to live in a certain way. Yes, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then life happens. And then we get fallen and trapped in the same patterns over and over again. We say, oh God, I want to I I promise you that I'm going to tell the truth instead of always falling into traps of being dishonest or gossiping about other people. And then by Tuesday, we forget all about it. We say, oh God, I promise I'm going to live pure. I'm not going to get trapped up in porn anymore. Oh, and by Sunday night, it's that promise is gone. We're back where we started or worse. But that's where the covenant and the message of covenant is such an incredible and powerful thing that speaks to us in our lives today. Because if we had walked through or been invited to walk through the carcasses, as it were, in that covenantal relationship, we would be bound by the terms that say, if I don't fill my half of the bargain, what I promise God, and what God invites me into, And friends, we all know that it's a when, not really an if, we don't fill our end of the bargains that we sometimes make with God. We would be in a place where we would be rightfully judged and God could say, may it be to you as it was to this animal that we engaged in this covenantal relationship with. We're as good as dead, friends, by covenantal standards. But it's as if that knowing our weaknesses God calls us to loyalty by His grace and by a demonstration of His faithfulness. Look at the covenantal language in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, where it says, Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed the God. He is the faithful God who keeps His covenant for a thousand generations. He lavishes His unfailing love on those who obey Him and keep his commands. He's the faithful one who invites us into and sustains relationship with him by his unfailing love and by his amazing and matchless grace. Because when we are faithless, when we are unfaithful, God still remains covenantally committed to us. And as a response to this, we're going to move into a time of communion. And sometimes in communion, we take a position of reflection, which is certainly appropriate because the Bible calls us to that and says that we should examine ourselves and we should make restitution for any relational rifts that exist. But I want to invite the serving teams to move to the tables. I want to invite the worship and song team to come. And the serving teams are uh, some of our Guatemala team. And this morning I want to invite us to approach the table with gratitude instead of the, sometimes the navel-gazing that we can get caught up in. I want to invite us to examine ourselves, yes, but invite us to yet again 
ask God to touch our hearts with the amazing reality of his grace that we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Genesis and that's demonstrated yet again by God's covenant. Because perhaps the most amazing reality in covenant is that this is not just a covenant that was made with Abram and his family. The Bible teaches that God has chosen to make a covenant with us. And even the language and some of the symbolism of the celebration of the Lord's Supper remind us of that and resonate with Genesis chapter 15. When on the cross, Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. And the New Testament is giving us the picture and saying, remember back to this idea of covenant. The love that has been demonstrated by God to us is essentially God cutting a covenant, a new deal with you and with me and all of humanity on the cross. Listen to the language that's used in 1 Corinthians, and it's used by Jesus himself in the Gospels. This cup is the new covenant between God and between his people. It's an agreement confirmed and signed by the blood of Jesus. Do this to remember as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. You're reaffirming the covenant. And God's covenant with us shares some of the same features as it did with Abram. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who sustains. God is the one who consummates it with his death and with his victorious resurrection. And he will remain faithful to the terms of this covenant and forgiveness and grace even when we have forgotten or chosen that we don't want to participate or rejected his participation in our lives. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never made that step of saying, I choose to enter into that covenantal agreement with God. The wonder and the mystery that God himself would want to open up the possibility of covenanting with us as human beings, fallen and as sinful where you are. Maybe today you've never made that step and you've never signed on your name, as it were, on the new covenant, God's covenantal offer, his invitation to participation in his family. If that's you today, the prayer teams will be available for you at the sides. And you may want to take some time to explore that with them and talk with them and say, I'd like to know more about what that looks like. Maybe you've been a part of God's family for a long time. And when we take communion, sometimes it can become just out of ritual or out of habit. But friends, when we do this, Again and again, it's as if we're signing again and reaffirming the terms of that covenant. That we didn't do anything to save ourselves. That it was by God's gift of grace to us in his son Jesus that he signed, sealed, and delivered redemption to us. And so as you come, I want you to take a few minutes before you come to reflect on this amazing gift that God has given to us as Scott and the team will lead us in song. And when you're ready, you can come and respond simply by taking the bread, which represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, and taking that cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. You can participate there at the table, or you can take it back to your seat and participate. 
It's not, you're not obligated to participate in any way. In fact, we would say this is for those who are part of God's covenantal family, who have said yes to relationship with him and who are in relationship then rightly with God and with each other. And so this is yet again an opportunity for us to say yes to God and to wonder and participate in the mystery of his grace and to partake in that way. And so Scott and the team will lead us in song, and whenever you feel like you would like to participate, you can just stand and move over to the tables and partake of the elements and then return to your seat and continue in an element of re- in an attitude of reflection and gratitude for what it is that God has done.